0: The following sermon is from the pulpit of Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. Visit us online at flintriverpbc.org. If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you don't have one present with you, you can always take one from the pew in front of you. As we read verses 1 through 7. A message that we have entitled Qualifications of the Gospel Ministry. Paul writes This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine. No striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous. One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. As you know, over the recent weeks together, we've been studying on Sunday morning the book of 1 Timothy. And as we've studied through this, as we've journeyed through this book, we've seen this developing theme that we should insist upon the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we should demand the gospel. We should insist upon it. We should be emphatic for it as we desire to know biblical truth. And so we've heard, up until this point, warnings against those who would teach things that are unbiblical, things that are unsound. We have been very powerfully reminded through Paul's words that we should insist upon biblical truth. We've heard all sorts of warnings against those who have made shipwreck of their faith in Paul's day, and... Over the last couple of messages together, we have emphasized our responsibility as believers in the truth to pray for the world that is around us. We pray for all sorts of men, for all men, not only those who agree with us, not only those that we might find great common ground, but we even pray for leaders. And as we considered from Paul's previous chapter here, chapter 2, the leaders that Paul exhorted that the saints should pray for were people who... Strung up Christians and executed Christians, people who persecuted the church very, very seriously. And so we come today to chapter 3, and our focus will be, first of all, the purpose of the gospel ministry in the world and in your life in particular, but especially the qualifications that Scripture demands of someone before he is ordained. Now, as we begin speaking about the gospel ministry today, we should probably do some defining of terms. Scripture gives two main titles for gospel ministers. And if I were to ask you what the title would be, you, you would probably understand, you'd probably know it, it's on the business card, it, it's on the website. We refer to our pastors, we refer to our ordained ministers as what? We refer to them as elders. Several of you said the word elder. Why do we do this? Because that is one of the biblical titles for the gospel ministry. Now, there's some titles that we don't use to refer to our ministers. One of those that's very popular today, and I'm not attacking people who would use this term, is the word reverend. Why is it that we don't use the word reverend to refer to our ministry? We don't because the Bible doesn't. If the Bible did, then we would. The word reverend does occur once in the Bible, and it is used as a title. It is used as a title for God himself. And so if you want to refer to someone as reverend, you refer to God as reverend. You can call me brother, you can call me elder, you can call me bishop, you can call me pastor, but that's a title that we're simply not comfortable with because the Bible never uses that to refer to ministers. The most common term used to refer to the gospel ministry Aside from the word disciple, which means student, and aside from the word minister, which means servant, and I think we can learn a lot from those two terms by themselves, we are disciples, we are learners of Jesus, and then we are ministers, we are servants of Christ, and in a gospel capacity, we are servants of the church. We serve them, as it were, we minister the Word of God to them. It is our administration of the Word uh, that we are ministers in. But we are elders, and the term elder in the Bible, it, use, it is used to denote age. It's used to denote experience. In a physical way, those of you that are advanced in age are the elders of our society. And there are elders both in a masculine sense and a feminine sense. There are elder men and elder women. The root of the word elderly, which I'm doing very, very much to avoid, is Uh, the word elder, and it conveys one of age. I asked the question the other day on social media, at what point does a person cease to be young? In the Bible, there's no such thing as middle age. There is young and there is old. And some of the answers that I got were interesting. It's, I think, one brother put, 10 years older than me at any given time is old. (laughs) And so if you're 10 years older than me, you're old. If you're not 10 years older than me, you're still young. And the bottom line is I'm always young. Of course, others answered that growing old is unavoidable. Growing up is optional. And I try to live very, very devoted to that to that wisdom and that mentality. Uh, We can grow older, but deep down inside, I, I still want to be a kid. But this word elder originally conveyed one of age. And so religiously, people took this term and they would apply it to those who had seniority, those who had authority, those who had rank. In the gospel accounts, the elders were people, and in the book of Acts, the elders of Israel were people who sat on the ruling council of Israel, the Sanhedrin. And so the elders of Israel were people who would convene as a council, and they had the authority to even impact a person's freedom. They had the authority even to put a person to death. They could rule. They could issue a decree. They were those who ran, for lack of a better term, the religion of Israel in that day. But as it relates to the New Testament church, the word elder is one who presides over our assemblies. And so scripture would refer to these people in the book of Hebrews as those who bear the rule, those who have the authority in the church. And we understand through Peter's writings that we are not lords over God's heritage, but we are examples to the flock. What does that mean? It means that we lead, we don't demand. We lead the sheep of God. It's often pointed out about shepherds and the nature of sheep that if you want to scatter the sheep, you need to try to drive them. Sheep are not easily driven. Sheep are easily led. It's much easier to lead sheep by going before them. And that's the exact example that we have for us in the word of God. We say, follow me as I follow Christ. We're examples to the flock of God. We're not lords over God's heritage, but we are under shepherds. We answer to Jesus and we give account to Christ for the spiritual condition of his sheep, which brings us to the term that Paul uses here, In the book of 1 Timothy chapter 2, the word bishop. The word bishop is defined as superintendent. And we all know what a superintendent is. In the Madison County school system, we have a superintendent. And in every school system, we have a superintendent. What is a superintendent? He's the person, or she is the person, with authority to look out for the school district, to set policy, and to work for positive change in leadership and direction within a school system. And so this word bishop, it means superintendent. And so what we find in the school system, we also find in a local assembly as a man is ordained to the office of a bishop. But this word bishop also translates, it's the Greek word episcopate. it translates overseer. In the book of Acts, I believe chapter 20, Paul speaks to the church at, or the elders of the church at Ephesus, and he remarks that the Holy Spirit has made them overseers in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the ministry has been placed in a position of oversight. Now, as we think about the word oversight, it's amazing how literal of a translation of the Greek word that is for us. And and, in studying this, that Greek word actually comes from a Hebrew word, but the Greek word episcope, epi is the Greek prefix for over. Now we use that in today's time. What is your skin referred to technically? It's your epidermis, right? And so what is it? It's over the rest of your body. Epi means over. The word scopi, is the word for see and that comes into the english language in words like scope microscope telescope a person has a scope what do they do with a scope you put a scope on your rifle so you can see further away it helps you see so episcope, episcope it means one who looks over the flock of god one who looks over the congregation the word also in the new testament and i found this to be very interesting also can mean to investigate, but it's used in specific to when God looks into the hearts of men and investigates their motives. So as we think about the concept of the bishop being the overseer, the word overseer, the word episcopae, also can have reference to when God investigates a matter when God tries the hearts of men, when God searches the hearts of men. And we know that only God can divide asunder between soul and spirit and joints and marrow. Only God, only the living word, our high priest Jesus, can read our thoughts and intents. He knows what we're thinking. He knows why we're thinking it. He knows all of our motives. And that word of investigation that the Bible uses to describe when God peers into our hearts is this word. And so that gives us a glimpse into the role of the gospel minister simply by examining the terms that the Bible uses to describe this particular office. And as we study through First Timothy, in our next message, we'll look at the office of the deacon as we read the qualifications of a deacon, that's very fresh in our mind here, as back in January, we were blessed to ordain two good men to the office of deacon. There are two offices in the Lord's church. There is but the elder, the bishop, the pastor, and the deacon. Now, under the umbrella of elder, there are several types of ordained minister. And this is a commonly overlooked fact. Now, if I were to ask you, what was the Apostle Peter in the church of the Lord Jesus. What would you say? He was an apostle. But Peter, in the book of 1 Peter chapter 5, called himself what? He called himself an elder. What does that tell you? That of elder, there are multiple offices, multiple types of elder. In the book of Ephesians chapter 4, we read that God gave gifts unto men, and you have apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor slash teacher. And so apostles fall under this overall umbrella of elder. Peter considered himself in 1 Peter 5 to be an elder. When James, excuse me, when John wrote his second epistle, he describes himself as an elder to a beloved person, a a mother and her children, and that's probably symbolic language for a, a New Testament assembly. But John refers to himself as what? Well, he refers to himself as an elder. And so apostles are elders, pastors are elders, evangelists are elders, and the early apostolic age prophets are elders. Concerning that, we'll you give you just a word of clarification. The prophets that God raised up spoke with great certainty and clarity concerning future events. They didn't speak as horoscopes are issued today where it's generic and could apply to anyone. And in some sense, somewhere at some time will come to pass. But when God gives prophecy... And this helps clarify what the prophets were. When God gives prophecy, he says, I'm going to raise up a man. It is going to be in this year. His name is going to be this, and he's going to do this, and it came to pass. You read about Cyrus, king of Persia, in the book of Isaiah, who was sent into the world to deliver Israel from Babylon, and God says all of this in advance. I'm going to send a man named Cyrus. He is my servant. He's going to deliver you from Babylon some 180 years before the man was born. They weren't even in Babylonian captivity, and God's telling them the man's name who's going to deliver them out of Babylon. That's how prophecy works when God sends the prophet. Some of the things that pass for prophecy today are not prophecy. It's simple horoscope. It's men making things up, and so we should be very clear and very cautious Deuteronomy 18 gives you the rule of that, and we give you that and just move on quickly. If a man speaks something and it doesn't come to pass, you know that that man did not speak in the name of the Lord. If he says, God told me, and then it doesn't come to pass, you know that that man is not sent of God to speak. As we think about the elder and the bishop, some believe there's a distinction made between elders and bishops, at least concerning their role. A church might have a plurality of elders, the argument would go, but they would have one bishop. In other words, a church might have several elders who are in the membership of that church and working in that church in the gospel ministry, but one bishop, one superintendent, one pastoral figure. And I would agree with that. I believe it's healthy for a church to have but one pastoral figure, and even if it has multiple elders... That are laboring together in the church. And I'm I'm very thankful when churches are blessed with a plurality of elders. We had a plurality of elders here at one time, and it was a great blessing to have another man here as a yoke fellow to labor with me in the work of this church. As we consider the role of the minister, aside from simply the definitions of the words, most basically the gospel ministry has been given by God to instruct his children. Now, I want you to pay very careful attention to what I'm about to say. God wants His Word spoken to His children. If you ever wondered, why do I bother to go to church? Now, there are many reasons we come to church. Number one, God said, go to church. You say, why am I here today? Because God said to come here today. God says, go to church. People say, and in our present day. I can be just as close to God hunting in a tree stand or in the middle of a boat in the middle of the lake as I can in church. And I would say, no, you can't because God has a church in His Word and His church is His what? Assembly. And so you say, well, I love Jesus. I just don't love church. But John says that we're to love the brethren. And Scripture commands on us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. I want you to understand how important it is to present your bodies a living sacrifice. You should come to church if for no other reason than because God says, go to church. But one of the things that is accomplished when you come to church, God willing, is that His word is spoken and that you hear His word. I want you to understand the special occurrence, even miraculous occurrence, when the gospel ministry shares the Word of God with God's children. Paul refers to this in his writings to the Thessalonians as the Word of God coming to you not in word only, but in power, in the Holy Spirit. There is a special presence of God through the Holy Spirit when His flock hears His Word. In our country today, church attendance, and and please understand, we emphasize what here? Christ. You're not going to be in heaven because you came to this place. You're not going to be in heaven because, you know, God, you got to let me in. I'm knocking on the door. I went to church whether I liked it or not. Every single Sunday from the moment that I was born until the moment that I died, nobody's going to be in heaven because they got the Flint River Primitive Baptist membership card. Right? We emphasize Jesus here will be in heaven because of Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. We're in heaven when we go to heaven because of Jesus. But there's a special presence of God that occurs in the heart of a child of grace when he presents himself in worship and the word of God is explained to him. And you get that only when you come to the house of God, the church of God, the pillar and ground of the truth, as we'll begin speaking about in a few weeks as we get to verse 15. The church is an important institution. The church is the highest ecclesiastical authority in the world. And when I say the church, I mean the local assembly. Jesus came to establish a church not a central headquarters. You you see this in Scripture. Every church is accountable to itself. And God raises up a man or men to lead that church, and they're accountable directly to Christ. He's the great head of the church. And He has seen fit to give men to labor. And when these men come before you and they share the Word of God, they're teaching you, they're pouring out their heart and their soul before you. They're taking the Word of God, and they're, they're giving it to you. They're speaking it to you. God would have His word spoken in the world. That occurred to me a few years ago as, as I was thinking the importance, thinking on the importance and meditating on the importance of what takes place when the word is preached. In, in the miracles that Jesus listed to John the Baptist disciples when they come to Him and they say, Art thou the Christ or should we look for another? Tell them the, the blind have their sight given, the deaf have their hearing given, the lame are made to walk again, And the poor have the gospel preached to them. You understand this is a miraculous thing when God the Spirit is here and He blesses me to speak it and He blesses you to hear it. A miracle has taken place. If I'm able to communicate with you in such a way that you feel the word as it's preached, it's miraculous. First of all, the role is that God's children would hear His Word. God wants His Word heard. Now, this is almost cliché. It's one of those things that you see on memes. I think it was John MacArthur who said that in our day and age, the meme replaces the proverb. In our day and age, instead of Proverbs, we have memes. And if you're not on Facebook and you're not on Twitter and you're not on Instagram, you have no idea what I'm talking about, that's okay. Just wait a couple of seconds. We'll come back to the sermon. But if you're online, you know what the meme is. It's the pithy statement. It's a short little saying. And sometimes there's a picture involved. And when you see it, you might laugh or it might be ironic. But you see it a lot in memes. If you want to hear God speak, read His Word aloud. If you want to read God's Word, if you want to know what God has spoken to you, read this Word. We amen that. This is God's Word. God wants His Word heard. The reason that you are here is because God wants you to hear it. He wants it to fall upon your ears. But as we consider the role of the minister to speak the Word, and this is still the introduction, you know I have 40-minute prefaces and 10-minute sermons. One of the reasons is for their edification. It isn't just for the sake of saying it to say it. The, the old saying goes, if a tree falls in the woods and no one's there to hear it, does it make a sound? Well, of course it makes a sound because it makes a sound wave. Because physics. You know, we can sit and have the debate over I believe it's Schrodinger's cat. Is it alive? Is it dead? It's in the box. We don't know. And I'm over here like I don't care. If it falls in the woods, does it make a sound if no one's there to perceive it? It isn't just for the sake of the sound waves impacting your eardrum, but the Word is preached to edify you. What does the word edify mean? It means to build up. That means when you hear the Word, God desires for you. It is His will for you to be built up. It is to positively impact your life. You learn instruction on how to live. Last time we were together, did we learn instruction on how to live? What did we study? We studied how men and women ought to behave themselves as disciples of Christ. We, we learned about modesty. We learned about shamefacedness. We learned about lifting up holy hands in prayer to God everywhere, not just in a temple in Jerusalem. Was that relevant to your life? I believe it was. God's word communicated something to you about how to live. And when you take that and you hear it and it's moving to you and you apply it, what is that? That is edification. You are built up by what you hear. You're trained to live in a better way through what you hear. And it's why I go cover to cover through books of the Bible. Because when you do that, there is nothing that is overlooked. You study it all. You learn it all. It forces you to approach every portion of the Word of God. And so you learn everything that God would have you to know. Or at least you hear it read to you, what God would have you to hear and to know. 1 Timothy 4.12 says that the ministry is given for the perfecting of the saints, the work of the ministry, the edifying of the body of Christ the building up of the body of Christ, the edifying of you, you are His body, you are His bride, you are His temple, you are His church, till we all come in the unity of the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. What is the purpose of the ministry? Unity among believers. And that's why we preach, it's why we share the Word, it's why we we try to do everything that we do. But you see, with many things in Scripture, this is a two-edged sword, a double-edged sword. Second Timothy chapter four, verse two, preach the word. What do we preach? We preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. But listen to this next part. This is why gospel preachers can be so unpopular. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. I would say that when you are a reprover, when you are a rebuker, when you are an exhorter in this world, you will be despised. You will be hated of men. Now there will be people in this world that love you. There will be people who come to hear your messages and, and they will listen and they will weep or they will rejoice. Sometimes they will be offended and then they will go home and think and say, well, it was the Word and so they will change. There will be people in this world that hate you. Which brings me to Another role of the minister, which is our more public aspect of ministry. Ministers are not only to labor among the flock. Ministers have a public ministry in which we go out into the culture in general and we preach the word of God. Now, if you read the book of Acts, you know, and the four gospel messages, you know that as the apostles and the elders, the evangelists went out and preached the word publicly, what happened? Well, people heard the word, and some of them were converted to the truth. And they turned from their paganism or their Judaism, and they followed Christ being baptized in his name. that's what we desire when we go and we preach the word of God with new faces and new people There's a portion of our ministry that is to be public. A part of our role is public. Concerning our public aspect of ministry, number two, we also serve in a sense as the conscience of the culture. You might want to write that down because even though we're ministry, every one of us has this responsibility as the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We serve as the conscience of the culture, as it were. What does your conscience do? When you do something wrong, your conscience speaks to your heart and it says, that was not right. You should not have done that. That was wrong. And you begin to feel conviction over that. And I would insist through what Jesus preached in the Upper Room Discourse, John 14 through 17, that this is the role of the Holy Spirit in the heart of a born-again person to reprove them for sin. The conscience in a man reproves him for sin. You as the conscience of culture reproves the world around you for sin. The great example of this in the New Testament, aside from the Lord Jesus, who went and did this everywhere, but sometimes someone could say, well, that was Jesus, that's not you. And while that would be true, we see other examples of this. The great example of this would be John the Baptist. How did John the Baptist meet his end in this world? He... Preached to Herod that it was unlawful for Herod to have taken his brother's wife as his own. And so Herod imprisoned him. This woman's daughter dances for him and pleases him, and so she tells this girl when he asks you what you want to impress you, tell him you want John the Baptist's head in a charger, a dish. And so he went and had John the Baptist beheaded. What had John the Baptist done? He went before even a king or a political figure, and he told him that what he was doing was sinful and wrong in the sight of God. That is also the role of the preacher. That means that preachers should preach against what? Sin. Sin. If you find a man that calls himself a preacher and he doesn't preach against sin, he is a pretender, or he's a afraid one. We must preach against sin. Guess what happens when you preach against sin? You make enemies. I could share the story. I had the, I counted it an honor a couple of weeks ago, and this is very minor. One of our elected officials had gone into a tirade. And please understand, this isn't a place for politics. And I don't talk about politics. And I don't talk about we've got to, you know, activate the base and, and go out and elect certain people. That doesn't belong here. But preaching against sin always belongs here. I had the privilege of being cursed out by a elected official recently. And this has happened a couple of times. Uh, this, this is not new. But I spoke to to this man he made some statements concerning abortion which is one of the one of the most heinous sins of our country today and i called him after he had made some horrendous statement about killing them now or killing them when they're older because they're unwanted what a wicked statement is that and my question was sir are you a christian because he claims to be a christian And if he said, yes, I'm a Christian, I was going to say, then I call on you to repent as a brother in Christ as you claim to be. But before I could get to that point, the barrage of insults and profanity began, and eventually he hung up on me, and I counted it all joy that that I would be met with such kickback If you listen to the radio program today, you know that we are to have the savor of life unto life, if they played the correct one, and the savor of death unto death. To someone who is dead in sin, you and I, as we display the knowledge of Christ, are to smell like death. Happy Mother's Day. (laughs) Well-placed humor helps a heavy message. We bear the fragrance of death to the dead. The world will not like you. The world will hate you. And if I'm a preacher and the world around me, those that hate Christ, love me, it might say more about me than it says about them. Because they are to hate me. You are to be unpopular. You are to be a poor and afflicted people. You are to be separate. Come out from among them and be ye separate. And so we serve as the conscience of the culture. Now, as we look into the passage for today, the qualifications of a minister, we must be as demanding of the biblical qualifications of a minister as the state would be of a doctor or a lawyer. Because this isn't a hobby. This isn't something that's a preaching habit, as it were. This is to be our life's work. And so we use this to vet potential candidates and It also serves to remind us that are already ordained that we can disqualify ourselves from this work. We can shame ourselves. We can bring reproach upon the cause. And we can lose our privilege of standing before you and preaching the word if we fall into sin. What a shame that is when that occurs. Verse 1, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. The word good carries the meaning of commendable. In other words, the gospel ministry is a commendable vocation. It is a good thing to do. Now, you might want to ask the question, well, where is the place of God's calling? If he desires a good work, does that mean that anyone can do this? No. The man desiring the work, the desire in the man, I should say, to do the work is generally the reaction to the divine call to the work. In other words, if you desire to preach the gospel, it is indicative of God calling you to preach the gospel. Not everyone in the church is called to preach the gospel. We read last time of Paul's words that he insists that only men be ordained. And as we come into chapter 3, we learn that it's far more restrictive than that. Very few men can be ordained, but a small minority of the men who know and love Christ are called to preach the word as far as to be a bishop, to be officially ordained. Now, we know that we heard all of us go everywhere preaching the gospel. And you mothers, as we learned in the last message together, you have a congregation far more hours a week than I do in your children, and they can't get away, they can't escape, they can't say, It's 12, I'm going to the lunchroom. But you can, you can preach to them every day, all day, from the time they wake up to the time they go to bed. And if you're like Sister Rachel, boy, she preaches to those kids. Don't make me come in there. I mean, she's a lot more fiery in her sermons than I am in mine. She puts the fire in them. I shared a picture of my mother on Facebook today to wish her happy birthday, but she's given the look in the picture that she gave as a child right before she hit me with a flip-flop. Oh, that woman preached to me. She held my feet to the fire. She held me accountable. We all preach in a sense, but we're not all ordained preachers. We desire to share the Word. And this desire to share the Word is usually accompanied by, and I would say is always accompanied by, a desire to dig into the Word. Now, sometimes we find ourselves stagnant, and and that happens. I've been the pastor here for nearly 13 years. There are times that I have been stagnant in my studies. And and it's, it's why Paul says in season, out of season. There are times when it's out of season. You're not hungering for the Word. And perhaps those are sent of chastening. Perhaps God does that to cause you to appreciate and dig into the Word when it is in season. But with the call to preach comes the desire to preach and the desire to study, and you desire to dig into the Word, and you want to learn more about it, you want to learn how to properly present it to God's people, and it's a fire that is locked up in the bones of a man. There are men, Jeremiah, for instance, and Elihu in the book of Job, they they refer to this burden as a fire in their bones, or new wine in a bottle ready to burst. In other words, it's a burden that has to be relieved. This is the gospel ministry. And so when a man desires this, it is indicative of a call. Now, how do you know if he genuinely has the call? Because there are men who have desired to preach, who stood up and tried to preach, who could not preach. You know when a man is called when the man preaches. He said, how do I know if he's called to preach? Does he preach? Yes. Then he's called. Gee, that was simple, wasn't it? How do I know he's called to preach? Does he preach? Yes. Then he's called. If he preaches well for a lengthy period of time, it is because he has qualified himself. And he qualifies himself through study and through discipline and through his behavior. Qualifications are here and they all relate to a man's behavior. Salvation is by grace, but to continue ourselves as qualified men, we have to take heed unto ourselves. It's simply how it, how it is. But he desires a good what? Well, he desires a good work. This word occurs many times in scripture and it can have reference to a task or a deed. But it can also have reference to official things like business or employment. And so, in this passage, we refer to this, or we say this is what we would refer to as a vocation or an occupation. The ministry is a vocation. It's an occupation. Now, we say occupation is in something you choose to do. We're already past that point. It's not, well, I want to grow up and be a preacher. It sounds like a good job. Well, do you like getting beat up? Do you like getting thrown in jail? Do you like being hated? If those sounds like fun things, then maybe it's a <laughs> maybe it's a good job to have. It is a vocation. It is to be a man's work. We see this depicted as Jesus comes to Peter as they're fishing after the resurrection. You you might remember Jesus is resurrected. He appears to them a number of times over forty days. And yet Peter sitting around with the rest of the disciples says, I go a fishing. Now, you and I may say, I go a fishing, and it's, you know, I'm gonna go have a little fun on the lake. I'm gonna go bass fishing. I wanna go catfishing. We had a catfish pond where I grew up, and we would go out there and and we would fish for catfishing. It's the only type of fish I fishing I know how to do. You you cast a line, you you prop your fishing rod up against something and you wait for the, the line to begin tugging. And then as it tugs, you, you snag and then you reel it in and you have a catfish. And we would go do that in, in elementary and middle school. We'd spend all day, every day in the summer out there at that lake. As I got old enough to, to shoot, we would also eradicate the lake of turtles and muskrats and beavers and all the things that ate the fish that we wanted to eat. I had an awesome upbringing. had an awesome upbringing. When Peter said, I go fishing, he's not saying, I want some recreation. That was his work. He says, I go back to work. I'm going back to work. With me, my secular profession was land surveying. I'm going surveying. I'm going to go bid on a project. I'm going to go get back to work. What does Jesus do? He comes to the bank. He says, children, have you any meat? We've not caught anything. Cast over there. They catch, and it's more than they can pull in. Peter says... Oh, it's the Lord. And John, the disciple whom Jesus loves, says, Behold, it's the Lord. Peter throws his cloak on him. He swims to shore. And Jesus is there with fish. And they dine with Jesus. Jesus looks at Peter and he looks at the fish and he says, Simon Peter, lovest thou me more than these? Now, Jesus isn't saying Do you love me more than James and John and all of these other men love me. Jesus doesn't hold... Competitions between his children for who loves him the most. He's not saying, do you love me more than they love me? He's saying, do you love me more than the fish? What could that mean? Do you love me more than your job? Do you love me more than your profession? Yea, Lord, I love thee. What does he say to that? Feed my lambs. In other words, you don't have time to be fishing, dude. Go work in the ministry. What did Jesus say to Peter when he... Called him into the ministry. Follow me and I will make you what? Fishers of men. From that moment on, Peter had no right to any other part of his life. What did he consider himself? Simon Peter, the what? Servant of the Lord, the slave of Christ. He didn't have the right to go back to work. Why? His new vocation is preaching. He is to go and preach the gospel. Now, we understand that many times men have to have some sort of a secular trade to pay the bills. But it is not their life's work. Their life's work is to be preaching. God has ordained that they who preach the gospel should what? Live of the gospel. That's in there just like Romans 8. That's in there just like Ephesians 1. And so he is to devote his life to this. It is a good vocation, a commendable work, a commendable work. I don't have the right to do with my life what I would want to do with my life. I'm to go and I'm to preach the gospel. Paul made tents. Paul never set up a chain of tent-making factories. He did what he had to do to get by and to some churches to... The Corinthian church, he said, In what way were you inferior to the churches? In that I was not burdensome to you. I robbed of the churches taking wages of them. Which tells us that Paul did very much believe in the ministry being what he was to do with his life. Concerning the requirements, he must be Blameless. That means there's no reason to rebuke him. This is convicting to me. Now, you guys are, are not ordained ministers. You need to know this. God wrote this so you would know this. But understand it from this point on, this is the portion of today's message that steps on my toes because I'm the one he's speaking about here. He must be blameless. No reason to rebuke him. The husband of one wife, which... In that day, please understand that polygamy was a thing. He cannot be a polygamist. So guess what if a man said, "I feel called to preach," but he had two wives?" The answer was, "I'm sorry. I'm sorry." The husband of one wife. You could also make the case he cannot be with one other than his wife. He has to be with his wife. He is to be vigilant. And that's interesting, the word vigilant. It has reference to, in the Greek language, not immoderate in the use of alcohol. In other words, he cannot be a person who abuses substances. He just can't. The next word, sober, and they use vigilant and sober here, I believe, to draw a distinction between the substance that a person would take and also the clear thinkingness that he must have sober there, as reference to sober-mindedness, he must be a clear-thinking person. He must clearly see and think and react. There's a word that I learned years ago, and it is the word unflappable. How many of you know that word? We don't use it every day. He must be an unflappable person. He must be a person who is clear-thinking he is calm, he's collected, he doesn't fly off the handle, but he, he navigates and negotiates this world very, very calmly and clearly. That was probably one of the most difficult parts of me to mortify early in my adult life, was reacting to things and being temperamental. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but people who bear the last name Winslet have tempers. And I can tell you stories about my dad because it wouldn't be stories about me. We all have our own stories, men, right? Things that you know got holes knocked in them, trucks with a dent in it when he was a younger man and a police officer, and would lose his cool. But if if your last name is Winslet and your heart is beating, then you have a tendency towards being temperamental. We're to be clear thinking. Of good behavior means modest simply means what it says, of good behavior. You you do things that are good. You're a modest person. Your behavior is good. Apt to teach. Now, I want to focus on this one for a little more than the others. He must have aptitude in his ability to teach. If he's not teaching you, he is not preaching to you. If he doesn't have the ability to teach, and, and we don't want to be preacher snobs about this. Is that a theological term? It doesn't mean every man has to sound like he's a college professor. But you need to learn from his preaching. If you're not learning from his preaching, he's not qualified. Bottom line, simple as that. Which also means that if I'm doing something in the pulpit that's distracting you to such a degree that you don't understand what I'm saying, then I'm disqualifying myself. Years ago, we fell into this idea that a man had to fall into some sort of rhythmic chant in his preaching and grunt and stammer about and... I can be colorful in the way I describe this, and I will not, that he wasn't preaching. But that's not what preaching is. Paul didn't do that. He was emotional, and it's fine to be emotional. James and John were the sons of what? Flowers? Pillows and clouds? Thunder. That meant either something about them or something about their daddy, maybe something about both. They were obviously boisterous men. Paul would beckon with the hand. You don't beckon with the hand when you're soft-spoken. You know, I said it a couple of weeks ago, handcuff me, I'll never preach again. You tie the hands, then the preaching stops. Paul was obviously emotional. But there has to be teaching involved. If I'm not conveying, if you're not learning, then preaching is not occurring. And I should also avoid quirks in the pulpit that distract from what I'm trying to say, even if it makes me feel better, even if it's emotional to those that hear it. Ernie Stump tells a story about a man that preached a sermon one time, and it was loud and boisterous, and you could barely understand a thing that was said, and somebody afterwards said, boy, wasn't he preaching. And Brother Ernie said, well, what did he say? And she said, I don't know, but he was preaching it. Might I insist that that's not preaching? If you don't understand it, if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare for the battle? You have to understand what I'm saying. And if it distracts, it shouldn't be done. It's to be given to hospitality, friendliness to guests, because this is a service to new people many times. I love to always meet uh, meet new people. And we're to be given to hospitality to be kind to be compassionate to be reaching out and even to be understanding when new people would come in when a person is first converted to christianity do they have a master's degree knowledge in theology no and so you're kind and you're calm and you're patient you're insisting in are firm for lack of a better term you're a mentor to them and a mentor has to be hospitable and patient no striker now, I'd like to spend about an hour on this, and I know time is almost away. We have ordained men in the past who are eager to come to blows with other men. And that's what a striker is, a man who's eager to fight. When we do this, when we ordain a contentious person, watch. There will be fights. There will be lots of them. Because he's, he's going around looking for a fight. And we've ordained men like that in the past. Not here, but in our churches, among our people. And, and what follows men like that, the rest of their ministries, one fight after another, tension, division of churches, divisions of associations, divisions of regions, and a man that goes around looking for a fight and fighting with others, he's simply unqualified. What do you really think? He cannot be greedy of filthy lucre. Why? Because ideally... He's to live of the gospel. And if he's greedy of filthy lucre, he'll change his message to impact his income. Or he'll jump up the ladder and he won't have a a compassion or a care for where God would have him to labor. We must ordain men who are selfless and willing to sacrifice, not greedy of filthy lucre. Sometimes people say, well, I know that it's there, but in this day and age, if if we do supply what God calls on us to supply for our ministers so that they can forbear working, I'm afraid that they won't speak the Word as freely as they ought to. And I think you know me well enough to know that that that's not the case. If you ordain qualified men to begin with, that's never the case. They're not going to be afraid of the consequences of preaching the truth, in calling people out for their sin. He's to be patient. He's to be kind. He's to be compassionate. He's to be gentle. He's to be fair. He's not to be a brawler. He's not to be one who fights. Verses 4 and 5, and oh, this is so convicting. One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity... For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? You find a preview of how a man pastors and looking at how he runs his home. If he is overbearing in his home, he will be overbearing in the pastorate. If he's controlling in the home, he'll be controlling in the pastorate. If he's slack and irresponsible in the home, he will be slack and irresponsible in the pastorate. If he's vindictive and vengeful in the home, he'll be vindictive and vengeful in the pastorate. If he's kind and loving in the home, he'll be kind and loving in the pastorate. If he's forgiving in the home, he'll be kind, he'll be forgiving in the pastorate. If his wife and his children adore him, Then you can assume that people that love the Word of God will look up to him and his leadership and his pastorate. You get a preview of what you can expect from a pastor when you look into his home life. One of the quickest ways that we disqualify ourselves is in that arena. We have to be the type of men that we are to be in the home, ruling his own house. Not a novice. Unless being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. He can't be a newcomer because he would fall to pride. Having a good report of them which are without, having a good reputation in all of these ways among good, decent folks in the community around him. As we close today's message, I want you to pray that God raise up qualified men to lead our churches. We have a great shortage of pastors. We have a great need right now within our churches of men to step up and to serve God in that capacity. It's always sad when a flock goes without shepherding. Pray that God would raise up laborers, send them into his harvest that they would not only lead flocks but work in the community to build up and even to grow through God's grace his churches through the preaching of the gospel.